faces. I'm glad that you're here. Um, so welcome to the class on the Vimalakirti Sutra. Um, so tonight is the first of three classes, as you guys know, and we've got two more on the 14th and the 21st. So the following two weeks at the same time and also on Zoom. Um, so I was wondering, just out of curiosity, if any of you have had any contact with Vimalakirti previously. I can't see everybody. Anybody? Yes, no. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Charlie. I did. Okay. Yes, yes. Oh. I do. Okay. <laughs> okay. Rowdy and Tim. All I right. shook hands with him. Oh. <laughs> Rowdy, you're, you're letting people know how old you are. Okay. What is it? Oh, <laughs> I see. Okay. Eight hundred. So, <laughs> <Not yeah. more. laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, what I wanted to start with was how I got interested in this text, and um, so several years ago, uh, Flint offered a course on Bhimala Kirti, and he had us. He was using uh, here. This I don't know if you can see this, but anyway, this. Um, this book, it's the Vimalakirti Sutra, and it's translated by Burton Watson, and it's a translation of the Chinese version, of, uh, Kumar Jiva's version of the original text, the translation of it. And so I took that class, and I, and I enjoyed the class and, and learned something, but I didn't read the book. And so, but I bought the book, and so after the class, I finally read it, and I got really interested in it. And so I got interested in it for several reasons. One, um, the, there's some techniques that are used in, in Mahayana text and, and particularly in this one. And one is that the, this use of vast numbers, um, like they, they don't just say a hundred people there were there. It's always thousands upon thousands of, of any one particular place. So it's this real expansion of, of numbers of, of things. So I was just curious. And, and then also the time and space in this particular uh, sutra expands and contracts in, in strange ways. And um, so like these people that were hundreds of thousands um, are in a, they all decide to go to visit Vimalakirti, which we'll get to in a minute, but they go to visit him and and he just has a, a normal sized bedroom and there's nothing in it but his chase lounge. But all of a sudden, all these hundreds of thousands of people can fit in there. And there's no explanation for that, but they just fit and there's no increase in size of the, of the room or the space around it doesn't change, you know. So it's just this weird stuff that goes on in the sutra. So it's, it's really really curious. And then at another point, these are the same group of people are moved to another place and they're moved in a mustard seed. And you kind of go, what, you know, what's going on? So um, those sorts of things, uh, this, um, the fellow that wrote the translation that I'm going to use for this, it's the Holy Teaching of Vimla Kirti, and it's by Robert A.F. Thurman. He talks about that and says that those things are used to create this sense of inconceivability. It's for the audience, the people who read this, or the people who, yeah, people who read it or were, were listened to the story in years, you know, a long time ago. 
is for them to expand their mind into this sense of inconceivability. It's all of a sudden more things can be accepted just because these things are so great. So it, that's just all, that just kind of got me curious. And, and then there are these numbered categories of, you know what, maybe we should mute for right sure, now. I can, do, I can do that. Yeah, okay. So anywhere there, but don't mute me. Just now, I have to unmute you. Okay. Oh wait. I muted. Okay, I'm unmuted. Are we good? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, then there's this other characteristic in this book where there's these numbered categories of, of, um, of knowledge. And so we're familiar with those um, to a certain, or at least I can say, I was familiar with just a couple of them, you know, the, the, um, uh, the noble truths and the, the eightfold path and the five hindrances, you know, there's a few here and there that I've run into in the last several years. And, but this book, um, has it all over the place and, and there's over a hundred of them and, and there's a glossary in the back that makes the book all worthwhile because if you ever read any more of these texts you'll find this they'll talk specifically about these different numbered things the um, convictions isn't that i mean they're just there's many of them and so this is a great source so i was kind of interested in all those i was looking all that stuff up the whole time i was reading it and like i say i've run into it again in some of the stuff that we've been reading recently with peg and lastly, the other thing that got my interest were these mythological characters from Indian. And all of these things that I was interested in aren't that important. They're kind of stylistic things and they have an effect on you when you read it, but they're not, I mean, obviously the center thing is the teachings. And so it wasn't until I actually read it and, and spent some time with it that I appreciated the teachings that are in it. So, um, so anyway, so I decided after that, that I should teach a class in it because I thought it would be, other people might be interested and, and I thought I would learn even more if I had to talk about it. So here we are. Um, so as I said before, this is, this is the text, the Holy Spirit. And um, it, uh, it's translated, it's the Tibetan version. Um, the Vimalakirti, uh, text has been translated in many languages. It's been translated into Chinese seven times and into Tibetan twice. And so the point uh, between, it's interesting that these two texts, the, the Holy Teaching of Vimalakirti and the Vimalakirti Sutra, it's the same story, but uh, what you find is the terminology is slightly different because they come from original, the original languages from which they were translated from, from Chinese or from Tibetan are different. So consequently, when you read one and then another, you say, well, wait a minute, wasn't that something else in the other one? And sure enough, it was. So the primary example is they talk about uh, Burton, uh, talks about Burton Watson talks about uh, skillful means. And then Thurman um, talks about uh, the skill of liberative technique and they're talking about the same thing it's just a different expression for the same thing 
it's just a different way of saying it and there's just shades of meaning and this is just an issue a translation issue so it's it's not a focal point of this talk by any stretch of the imagination but it's just important to know that if you've read one of the other books and then you read this one and you go wait a minute you know and so emptiness is called in one it's emptiness in one place and voidness in the other and they're referring to the same same thing so you find that <clears throat> when when you know different translations they have slightly different but the main overall story is the same um so according to this uh to thurman uh as far as the original text it goes apparently um he says and i'm quoting here nothing concrete is known about the original text of the vimalakirti but it um Supposedly, it records events that occurred during the time of the of Gautama um, Buddha. So that's fifth, fifth century before Common Era. And yet, no text was apparent in India until after Nagarjuna um, had revived the Mahayana traditions around the first century before Common Era uh, to the first century Common Era. And when he discovered the Mahayana Sanskrit scriptures. So, um, and Vimalakirti was among those texts. And so there's an obvious gap of 400 years between the events of Gautama was actually around and, and this other translation being found. So, you know, there's some question as to what, where the original text came from that's still not known for sure. So hopefully scholars will shed some light on the mystery uh, surrounding that original text. Okay, so that's enough of that stuff. Um, there were two questions that I wanted to propose to you all, or they're questions that I think we should keep in mind as we're reading through these um, through these chapters. And that is, um, why should we be interested in reading this this particular text? Why is Vimalakirti? Why would it be important? And I don't want to say what I think necessarily. It's important that you make up your mind about that. So um, we just keep that in mind as something to think about. And then also, um, does this ancient text hold some uh, relevance for us in our practice today? And if so, how? So I'll be asking some questions about that, but it, ultimately it's a question that you all can answer for yourselves as we go along. So um, as far as the scope of this class, I, I've got, three of these classes and it's not near enough time to cover the whole book. So um, I have indicated before that there's just three chapters that we're going to cover. Um, I'm gonna summarize the first four and actually I wrote about them in, in some of the descriptions of the class. So you're familiar with it a little bit anyway. But, um, and then we'll go over chapter five tonight and then next week will be chapter seven and then the following uh, week will be chapter eight. Uh, chapter five, and I'll just give you a little taste of what all of those are about. The five, chapter five is what we're going to be, um, where Vimalakirti is speaking with Manjushri about emptiness or voidness and the source of elimination of sickness. Uh, chapter seven is called the goddess and Vimalakirti uh, talks about the great com compassion and equanimity of a bodhisattva. And then the goddess enters and, and delivers a, uh, a lesson to Shariputra. And then lastly, chapter eight, entitled The Family of the Tathagatas, uh, Vimalakirti speaks on how the Bodhisattva attains the way of the Buddha. 
And so really enjoyed this, uh, this chapter. And I, I, for me is uh, what I call the good news um, on being humans. So anyway, we'll find out about that later. So uh, what I plan to do and how we can integrate into this text is we're gonna be reading, um, reading aloud uh, tonight in particular, all of us will, if you'll be so kind as to do that. If you don't want to, that's okay. Um, and um, then we'll also do some acting out of one, one section and then we'll, uh, the third class will be uh, dividing into pairs and working and then we'll come back all together. So we have various things, various ways we'll do it. So any questions so far? Okay, I will continue. Um, so the storyline, so this is chapters one through four, is that uh, chapter one is um, Buddha. The Buddha is in uh, Amrapali Gardens outside of the city of Vashali. And he's uh, uh, teaching to a huge gathering of bodhisattvas, disciples, monks, nuns, um, Rama kings, divas, no, devas, and many other heavenly beings. So there's it's a huge group of people. And at the same time, uh, the wealthy, the wealthy man named Vimalakirti, who lived in the great city of Vishali, is feigning illness to draw a crowd of well-wishers to come and visit him so he can teach the Dharma. Because actually he's a bodhisattva who had returned to the world had, uh, to help liberate all living beings. So to give some history on Vimalakirti, uh, he served the ancient Buddhas. He generated roots of virtue and by honoring and making offerings to them. He attained tolerance and uh, played with super knowledges. He penetrated the profound way of the Dharma and was liberated through the transcendence of wisdom and integrated his realization with skillful means. So he's well known for his masterful eloquence, skillful means, and overall understanding of the Buddha's teachings, as well as his imperturbable intellect. So in fact, he's considered a close colleague in teaching by the Buddha himself. This is according to Sarman. So um, he, at the same time, he's very wealthy and his, his wealth is inexhaustible in terms of helping the poor and the helpless. Um, he mains, maintains pure morality to protect the immoral. Uh, he has got energy to inspire the fire people who are lazy. He appears to be surrounded by servants and yet lives in solitude. He wears the white clothing of the lay person yet lives this um, religious life is, is a religious devotee. He's married, he has a son, he has female attendants, but always remained continent. I love the way they say it. I wrote down that word in particular. It's a strange word, but that's the word they use. I, I think that means celibate, although he's got a son, so who knows. Anyway, um, he lives at home, aloof from the uh, realm of desire, the realm of pure matter, and the immaterial realm. To be in harmony with people, he associates with the elderly and the young and people of all walks of life. Develop children, he goes to schools, and to demonstrate the evils of desire, he goes to brothels. So this guy is all over the place. He is 
obviously very much in the world and goes everywhere with the idea of liberating living beings. So uh, when it's known that, as I said before, he was feigning illness, so he can get a gathering to, to, to uh, offer the Dharma. Um, when it's known in the town of Vaishali that he's ill, the, the king of Vaishali shows up and all the officials and the lords and businessmen and town and country folk, everybody shows up and when they're all gathered at, at his house, um, presumably in his bedroom, um, uh, Vimalakirti starts speaking and offers his discourse on the actuality of the four main elements and how the body of the Tathagata is the body of the Dharma. So, um, and with this talk, this is another one of these statements, with that, with that talk, many hundreds of thousands of living beings conceive the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment. So after this is done, then he's sitting there thinking, well, why doesn't the Buddha come? Why doesn't he send somebody to check on my health? This is very strange. Of course, the Buddha being able to hear other people's thoughts, hears that thought, and he says, well, okay. And he goes to Shariputra and asks Shariputra to go and visit Vimalakirti to inquire about his health. And Shariputra is, is reluctant uh, because in the past he's been sitting in meditation under a tree and in contemplation, and Vimalakirti came along and said that he shouldn't, um, that was not the way to absor absorb himself. And he proceeded to explain how we should do it. And after Vimalakirti's explanations, Shariputra had nothing to say to him. I mean, he was completely um, speechless. And as much as anything, he knew that Vimalakirti was right. I mean, Vimalakirti had a much uh, more profound way of looking at things. So Shariputra basically said he, wasn't, he really didn't want to go. So the Buddha went to the next disciple. And in the book, they, in the first chapters, it explains the stories. And the stories, some of them are kind of funny. Every single one had a similar story. They were all reluctant to go because they didn't want to have to meet up with Vimalakirti because he, he always, you know, knew better <laughs> about how to, how to do things. His knowledge was far superior to theirs. So he went through all the disciples and nobody wanted to go. And then he started on the bodhisattvas. And none of the same thing with the bodhisattvas. They were also reluctant and they all tended to, they all told similar stories again, very similar to the disciple stories and, and said they had all been left with nothing to say to Vimalakirti after he gave his lesson to them and that they felt incompetent to speak with him. So the Buddha, the last, the only one left is Manjushri. And so the Buddha asked Manjushri and Manjushri was reluctant to and gave a similar story, but at last he says, but okay, I'll go, I'll, I'll do the best I can, fully knowing that he was not on the level of Vimalakirti. So now the story starts actually. <clears throat> so this is chapter five when Manjushri has said that he will go. And when he says that he will go, of course, the news spreads all over amongst all the people who had been in the audience of uh, Buddha, of the Buddha's teaching in the morning. 
and the, the disciples and the bodhisattvas who did not want to go talk to him, they were all making their way to Vimalakirti's house because they sure wanted to see the, the discussion. So they all followed Manjushri to Vimalakirti's sick room. And um, the Vimalakirti uh, thought to himself, Manjushri, Manjushri is coming here with numerous attendants, so I'm going to make my house be transformed into emptiness, which is an interesting word to use. And so the whole place, all the furniture was gone in a moment, and even the door person was gone, and nothing was there but his chaise lounge and him. And so uh, Vimalakirti says to Manjushri, welcome Manjushri, Manjushri, you are very welcome. There you are without any coming. You appear without any seeing. You are heard without any hearing. So you can see that this is not a light conversation that's coming up. And Manjushri declares, householder, it is as you say, who comes, finally comes not. Who goes, finally goes not. Why? Who comes is not known to come. Who goes is not known to go who appears is finally not to be seen. So um, obviously uh, this conversation between Manjushri and Vimalakirti is a conversation characterized by statements at the, at the beginning. It starts with an ordinary or relative or mundane perspective. There you are, for example, I see you. Um, and, and ends with in the non-ordinary or the, the um, non-dualistic or the absolute. So, um, there you are, without any coming, without any seeing, without any hearing. So, so this is, um, this is where the, the relative and the absolute have come together. They, they juxtaposition the two together. And this, you'll see this throughout the, throughout the text. Um, so on the, uh, so Vimalakirti, and this is alluding to the simultaneity of simultaneity of the two levels of truth, the absolute and the relative, and um, there's no conflict between the two <clears throat> because the seer doesn't see the emptiness of the seer, the seeing, and the seen. All three are empty, and Manjushri agrees, and he agrees. In the absolute, it is impossible to know certain super, superficial realities, thus the dreamlike nature of conventional reality, coming, going, seeing. Okay, so, um, so from here, I'd like, if you guys do have your texts, I hope. Yeah. Um, so I thought we could start, and instead of, uh, I thought you guys could read, and we could just read, uh, read chapter five together and I'll be stopping you here and there just to make a comment. So I, what I thought we would do is uh, divide it up. It's mainly Manjushri Vimalakirti. So I thought like starting, um, let's see, let me see you all here. Maybe we could go by, um, uh, I know we do it in alphabetically by first name. Can we do that? Um, so it would probably be Barbara first, and then uh, Trouty, and then there's a bunch of J's, whole bunch of J's. So you'll have to sort yourself out. 
Um, so Judy would probably be last, Joan probably goes first, then John, then Judy, uh, and then Kim, and then Nancy, you're last. So, um, so we'll just do, do by, so does that, is that understandable what we're doing? Yes, no, do you hear me? Anybody alive? Okay. Oh, that's right, you're on mute. <laughs> Okay, that's why I wasn't hearing them. All right, so um, so let's start uh, with Barbara and where it says, let's see, this is on, in the book. If you have the book, it's page 43, uh, a third the way down the page. And if you're looking at the PDF, it should the same. be page. Oh, it's the same? Yeah. Great, okay, terrific. So it's I, have, I have a different edition. So. Uh, I have this too. So, okay. It starts with good, sir. Is your condition tolerable? Okay. Okay. Oh, wait. You what? said chapter five. No? Right. Yeah. Yes. Because it says the consolation, consolidation. Consolation. Consolation of the invalid. Yeah, I've already read, I've already told you the first part of it. So oh. if you go to page 40, 43 in the book, Three. Down, mm -hmm. and it may be 40. 44 on in the uh, PDF. Bottom, bottom of 44. Okay. And what, li what line are we looking for? It says, Good sir, is your connection tolerable? I see it. Oh, okay. I got it. Shall I begin? Yeah. Um, yeah. Good, sir. Is your condition tolerable? Is it livable? Are your physical elements not disturbed? Is your sickness diminishing? Is it not increasing? The Buddha asked about you if you have slight trouble, slight discomfort, slight sickness, if your distress is light. If you are cared for, strong, at ease, without self-reproach, and if you are living in touch with the supreme happiness. Do I keep the, reading? Yeah, the next line is your two. Yeah, there's two. Oh, I just read his part? Yeah. <coughs> Whence came this sickness of yours? How long will it continue? How does it stand? How can it be alleviated? Okay, stop right there. Um, so... Uh, the question that I have, does this sound like any teaching that you've heard when they're talking about sickness? From whence does it come? What is it? How long will it continue? Does that sound like anything anybody's familiar with? Okay, well, we'll continue and see if something, <laughs> something comes up. Well, there's, okay. a, there's a koan about, about sickness and where the master's not really, he's sick, but he says, I, I'm not really sick. And I don't remember more about that, except that that, that sickness is, is pretty much um, a condition that you, it's a way of looking at your condition. And he's not looking at it that way. Okay. So. Um, okay, well, let's read a little bit further and, and see, uh, see, what we, see what we find. I don't want to give it away so soon. What I see in it, anyway. Okay. 
<clears throat> so the next one, Vimala Kirti, who's the next person? Charlie? Charlie? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Vimala Kirti replied, Manjushri, my sickness comes from ignorance and the thirst for existence, and it will last as long as do the sickness of all living beings. Were all living beings to be free from sickness, I also would not be sick. Why? Manjushri, for the Bodhisattva, the world consists only of living beings, and sickness is inherent in living in the world. Were all living beings free of sickness, the Bodhisattva also would be free of sickness. For example, Manjushri, when the only son of a merchant is sick, both his parents become sick on account of the sickness of their son. And the parents will suffer as long as that only son does not recover from his sickness. Just so, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva loves all living beings as if each were his only child. He becomes sick when they are sick and is cured when they are cured. You ask me, Manjushri, whence come, comes my sickness? The sickness of the Bodhisattvas arise from great compassion. Continue. Hello? Uh, she's muted. Hello, hello. Yes, I'm sorry. sorry. I'm muted. Pardon me? Police helicopters are flying overhead and police cars are running all over the place and Ollie is barking. So, <laughs> so I, I muted myself. Yes, proceed. I just read the paragraphs. You didn't hear anything? I read the paragraph. Uh, you didn't hear anything? Yes, no, I heard it all. I just muted myself. Okay, so you finished and Manjushri is up next. Okay. Yes. And so, do I do Manjushri since I'm Joan? Do I do all of that? Um. Well, what I thought is, let's see, that goes all the way down to. Something is down to here. Yeah, that's okay. And then we're going to stop. Yeah. Why don't you do it? And then um, Vima the Kirti would be the next person, which would be the other day, John. Do you want to be uh, being with Kirti? And you guys could just go back and forth for a few minutes for this whole section on emptiness. Householder, why is your house empty? Why have you no servants? Manjusri, all Buddha Beard's fields are also empty. What makes them empty? They are empty because of emptiness. What is empty? about emptiness. Constructions are empty because of emptiness. Can emptiness be conceptually constructed? Even that concept is itself empty, and emptiness cannot construct emptiness. Householder, where should emptiness be sought? Manjusri, emptiness should be in the 60 convictions. Where should the 62 convictions be sought? They should be sought in the liberation of the Tathagatas. 
Where should the liberation of the Tathagatas be sought? It should be sought in the prime mental activity of all living beings. Manjushri, ask, you ask me why I am without servants, but all Maras and opponents are my servants. Why? The Maras advocate this life of birth and death, and the Bodhisattva does not avoid life. The heterodox opponents advocate convictions. The Bodhisattva is not troubled by convictions. Therefore, all Maras and opponents are my servants. Okay, what stop. sort is your sickness? No, let's stop what there. Uh, Joan, let's stop there if we could. Okay. Um, so, so what we have is the beginning is we're asking about about sickness, right? And that's how it started. Um, and then the next the next section was my sickness comes. Uh, Manjushri uh, or Kitri says my sickness comes from ignorance and the thirst for existence. So, um, so how um, I'm perceiving that is what we're talking about here are the four noble truths. So um, when we, the, um, the sickness, it's like the Four Noble Truths, the first one is that there is, there is suffering, old age, sickness, and death, right? And the second one is, um, the second one is, is what does, where does suffering come from? And so um, in the actual words of the Buddha, it's, Comes exactly this line. It comes from ignorance and the thirst for existence. So, so what what they're what this what they're doing in this story is they're going they're starting with the four noble truths. It's kind of play with it. Um, and then they've gone into emptiness. And so we'll we'll see the next couple of them. But I wanted to bring up bring up those. And then also I don't know if you guys are familiar with the sixty two sixty two convictions. Um, and I just, I have a footnote, so I thought I would read that to you, so that would be clear. I know that, that the text that I sent you doesn't have footnotes. So the 62 convictions are enumerated in these two texts and consist of all views other than the right view of selflessness, all fall into either one of two categories as extremism, externalism, eternalism, and nihilism. So anyway, he's got this got this conversation going on about further about emptiness and where you find it is in these 62 convictions and that, that the convictions are are empty because it's a construct and then the liberation of the tathagatas is also is also empty because it's the, the liberation of the tathagatas is is also empty and the prime mental activity of all living beings is empty Unless you're talking in the relative. So you have both the relative and the absolute playing in and here. And emptiness is there. And so is this, the, the relative is there. So I just wanted to point that out. So, um, okay. So now we can, is that, are you following me so far? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So what is it? Um, what are the 62 convictions? 62 convictions? What page Did you ask is what? that? Oh. Um, 44. Yeah. No, no, no. 44. I mean, what are they? Oh, do you, do you, Sarah, no, no, do you no, have... No, not the uh, pages. I'm curious. 
Um, I have the Sarah, do you have the PDF or the book? I have the PDF. I have the oh, PDF. Then it's the middle of 46. Okay, thank you. Okay, the 62 convic convictions are, um, it's, it's all, the, all the views that are not, uh, are not part of the right view for the Eightfold Path. They're, they're, they're not, they're not right view. There are other ideas that people hold that are not right view about selflessness. So they're wrong views. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> According to, to the Buddha, anyway. <laughs> well, they could be additional views, but they're wrong views. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're incorrect views. So, okay. So. Okay, so let's pick up of, of what sort is your sickness. We're on Joan and John and now Judy. Where are we? I've lost so, Is now Judy going to be Manjushri? No, you yeah. are, Joan. Okay. I mean, I'm gonna... No, you're, you're done. We're going to keep, we're going to keep changing. Okay. So everybody gets to play. I lost exactly where we are. So 46. I know. Are you on the book? You have the book, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I think it's 40. 44. Okay, I got it. I just don't know the line we're on. Householder. Okay. Householder. Householder. Okay. So, which one do you want me to read? That one, Manjusri? Yes. John, are you reading with me? Okay. Householder, of what sort is your sickness? Who, who's reading? Should I read? I thought John. Yeah. yeah. No, John already read. Okay, I'll read. Go ahead, Kim. Uh, uh, is it immaterial and invisible? Is it physical or mental? It is not physical, since the body is insubstantial in itself. It is not mental, since the nature of the mind is like illusion. Householder, which of the four main elements is disturbed? Earth, water, fire, <coughs> or air? Manjushri, I am sick only because the elements of living beings are disturbed by sicknesses. Householder, how should a bodhisattva console another bodhisattva who is sick? You should tell him that the body is impermanent, but should not exhort him to renunciation or disgust. You should tell him that the body is miser miserable, but should not encourage him to find solace and liberation, that the body is selfless, but that living beings should be developed, that the body... <laughs> <laughs> is peaceful, but not to seek any ultimate calm. He should urge him to confess his evil deeds, but not for the sake of absolution. He should encourage his empathy for all living beings on account of his own sickness, <coughs> his remembrance of suffering experienced from beginningless time, and his consciousness of working for the welfare of living beings. He should encourage him not to be distressed, but to manifest the roots of virtue, 
to maintain the primal purity and the lack of craving, and thus to always strive to become the king of healers who can cure all sicknesses. Thus should a bodhisattva console a sick bodhisattva in such a way as to make him happy. Judy? Well, it's a separate section. Uh, Manjushri asked, no, sir, how should a sick bodhisattva control his own mind? Manjushri, a sick bodhisattva should control his own mind with the following consideration. Sickness arises from the total <coughs> involvement in the process of misunderstanding from begin beginningless time. It arises from the passions that result from unreal mental constructions. And hence, ultimately, nothing is perceived which can be said to be sick. Why? The body is the issue of the four main elements, and in these elements there is no owner and no agent. There is no self in this body, and except for arbitrary insistence on self, Ultimately, no I, which can be said to be sick, can be apprehended. Therefore, thinking I should not adhere to any self, and I should rest in knowledge of the root of illness. He should abandon the conception of himself as a personality and produce the conception of himself as a thing, thinking, this body is an aggregate of many things. When it is born, only things are born. When it ceases, only things cease. When things have no awareness or feeling of each other, when they are born, they do not think. I am born. When they cease, they do not think. I cease. Mm -hmm. Well, he goes on. Should I continue or someone else? Yeah, we can move on to the next two. Okay. Um, so Sarah and Nancy, right? Yeah. Sarah, do you want to start where it says furthermore? Yeah. Uh, furthermore, he should understand thoroughly the conception of himself as a thing by cultivating the following consideration. Just as in the case of the conception of self, so the conception of thing is also a misunderstanding and this misunderstanding is also a grave sickness. I should free myself from this sickness and should strive to abandon it. What is the elimination of this sickness? It is the elimination of egotism and possessiveness. What is the elimination of egotism and possessiveness? It is the freedom from dualism. What is the freedom from dualism? It is the absence of involvement with either the external or the internal. What is the absence of involvement with either external or internal? It is non-deviation, non-fluctuation, and non-distraction from equanimity. What is equanimity? It is the equality of everything from self to liberate. Why? Because both self and liberation are void. How can both be void? As verbal designations, they are both, they are both void and neither is established in reality. Therefore, one who sees such equality makes no difference between sickness and voidness. 
the sickness itself is voidness. And that sickness is voidness is, it's, is itself void. The sick bodhisattva should recognize that sensation is ultimately non-sensation, but he should not realize the success, cessation of sensation. Although both pleasure and pain are abandoned when the Buddha, Buddha, Buddha qualities are fully realized, there is then no sacrifice of the great compassion for all living beings living in the bad migrations, thus recognizing in his own suffering, the infinite sufferings of these living beings, the Bodhisattva correctly contemplates these living beings and resolves to cure all sickness. As for these living beings, there is nothing to be applied and there is nothing to be removed. One has only to teach them the Dharma for them to realize the basis from which sicknesses arise. Why don't we let what Nancy... What is the base? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Nancy, yeah. do you want to read? Oh, okay. Starting on um, what is the basis? What is the basis? Is the uh, is object perception insofar as apparent objects are perceived? They are the basics of sickness. What things are perceived as objects? The three realms of existence are perceived as ob objects. What is the true the true uh, understanding of the basic apparent object? It is its non-perception as no objects exist, and ultimately. What is non-perception? The internal subject and the external object are not perceived dualistically, therefore it is called non-perception. Manchu 3, should a There's a footnote there and I thought I might read it because it may help, um, may help explain that a little bit. And it's also a real important point that he makes. So the, the footnote that goes with, therefore it is called non-perception. He says, um, in order to abandon adherence to materialism, one should condition oneself to the cultivation of non-perception. So doing even a single instant of the undistorted spontaneous realization of the reality of all things will eliminate the stream of passions with their instinctual drives these instincts being the cohesive force in objective appearance. Thus, when no objects are perceived, there is no occasion for the arising of instinct. This is the method of the Mahayana. So, okay. So now, if, if you wanna continue. Oh, okay. Um. Thus, should a sick bodhisattva control his own mind in order to overcome old age, sickness, death, and birth? Such, Manjushri is the sickness of the bodhisattva. If he takes it otherwise, on his efforts will be in vain. For example, one's con one is called hero when one conquers the miseries of aging, sickness, and death. The sick Bohisapa should tell himself, just as my sickness is unreal and non-existent, so the sicknesses of unliving beings are unreal and non-existent. Through such considerations, 
he arouses the great compassion to all living beings without falling into any sentimental compassion. The great compassion that strives to eliminate the accidental passions does not conceive of any life in living beings. Why? Because great compassion that falls into sentimentally purposive views on the exhaust, the Bodhisattva in his reincarnations. But the great compassion, which is free of involvement with sentimentally purposive views, there is not exhaust the Bodhisattva in on history incarnations. He does not reincarnate through involvement with such views, but reincarnates with his mind free of involvement. Hence, even his reincarnation is like a liberation, being reincarnated as if being liberated. He has the power and ability to teach the Dharma, which liberates living beings from their bondage. As the Lord declares, it is not possible for one who is himself bound to deliver others from their bondage, but one who is himself liberated is able to liberate others from their bondage. Therefore, the Bodhisattva should participate in liberation and should not participate in bondage. Am I continue? Uh, we can uh, start over. We're almost, we don't have that much to go, which is good. Mm -hmm. Can I begin? Yeah. Please. Oh, you haven't read, Laurie. Do you? I, I don't have to. Well, I, um, okay, I guess I can. I've already read some, but um, uh, let's see. According to Vimala Kirtan, I think. What is bondage? What is bondage? What is bondage? Just a moment. What page is that on? 46. 46. Okay. okay. What is bondage and what is liberation? To indulge in liberation from the world without employing liberative technique, that's skillful means, is bondage for the bodhisattva. To engage in life in the world with full employment of liberative technique is liberation for the bodhisattva. To experience the taste of contemplation, meditation, and concentration without skill in liberative technique is bondage. To experience the state of contemplation and meditation with skill and liberative technique is liberation. Wisdom not integrated with liberative technique is bondage, but wisdom integrated with liberative technique is liberation. Liberate, liberative technique not integrated with wisdom is bondage, but liberative technique integrated with wisdom is liberation. Do you see a bondage and attachment as being the same thing? Oh, you know, uh, that's a good question. Um, let me think about that. Okay. Ari, what is uh, what is skillful means in this context? In this context, skillful means is the liberative technique. It's skill and liberative technique, and in, in being able to liberate people. Oh, look at here. 
And so it's skillful means like upaya um, is the same, what is what he is calling the skill and liberative technique that is in liberate, liberating other, others and doing it in a skillful way. What is, what's a skillful way? Can you, what's an example? Isn't well, it kind of, kind of knowing what to do in any given situation? What would be most helpful? What would be actually be truly helpful and not just somebody helping. It's, um, and it can come in all forms. Uh, what would be a good example? Um, like sometimes uh, being fierce and firm with someone can be um, skillful means. It depends on the person and the effect that it will have on them and in their situation. What is going to liberate them from wherever they're stuck? So, so then, then that would be the bondage, I guess, would be this, like stuckness that you were saying, or what was the other word you said? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So, yeah, so um, it, it's not any specific thing. It's in any case doing no, the thing that's knowing what that to do in a given situation. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's not it's not something that's um, prescribed. It's it's what what comes up in the moment that is more likely to say something and it will turn somebody. Um, so that they it's responding it's responding to the situation yeah it's not I, reacting yeah right in a skillful way responding but as opposed to reaction for sure okay well i'm just so, say it looks like bondage is just as opposed to liberation that you're either yeah it's the opposite of yeah. So I guess that would be stuckness. I can't hear you, John. I agree. What did you say? I didn't you hear you. John. Oh, I didn't Me? hear Joan. Yeah. What did you say? Uh, I agree. Oh. Not. <laughs> okay. Uh, I continue the reading. Yeah. Okay, top page 47. How is wisdom not integrated with liberative a bondage? Wisdom not integrated with liberative technique consists of concentration on voidness, signlessness, wishlessness, and yet being motivated by sentimental compassion. Failure to concentrate on concentrate on cultivation of the auspicious signs and marks, on the adornment of the, the Buddha field, and on the work of development of living beings. And it is bondage. Okay, the next person? Yep. Let's just do paragraph by paragraph on this. So, Trouty. Your turn, Trouty. How is wisdom integrated? Pardon me? Go ahead. Go ahead. How is wisdom integrated with liberative technique or liberation? Wisdom integrated with liberative technique consists of being motivated by the great compassion and thus of concentration on cultivation of the auspicious signs and marks 
on the adornment of the Buddha field and on the work of development of living beings, all the while concentrating on deep investigation of voidness, singleness, and wishlessness, and it is liberation. Mm. What is the bondage of liberation, liberative, liberative technique not integrated with wisdom? The bondage of liberative technique not integrated with wisdom consists of the bodhisattva's planting of the roots of virtue without dedicating them for the sake of enlightenment while living in the grip of dogmatic convictions, passions, attachments, resentments, and their subconscious instincts. What is the liberation of liberative technique integrated with wisdom? The liberation of liberative technique integrated with wisdom consists of the bodhisattva's dedication of his roots of virtue for the sake of enlightenment, without taking any pride therein, while foregoing all convictions, passions, attachments, resentments, and their subconscious instincts. Manjusri, thus should the sick bodhisattva consider things. His wisdom is the consideration of body, mind, and sickness as impermanent, miserable, empty, and selfless. His liberative technique consists of not exhausting himself by trying to avoid all physical sickness and in applying himself to accomplish the benefit of living beings without interrupting the cycle of reincarnations. Furthermore, his wisdom lies in understanding that the body, mind, and sickness are neither new nor old, both simultaneously and sequentially. And his liberative technique lies in not seeking cessation of body, mind, or sickness. That, Manjushri, is the way a sick Bodhisattva should concentrate his mind. He should live neither in control of his mind nor in indulgence of his mind. Why? To live by indulging the mind is proper for fools, and to live in control of the mind is proper for the disciples. Therefore, the Bodhisattva should live neither in control nor in indulgence of his mind. Not living in either of the two extremes is the domain of the Bodhisattva. I guess I'm next. Not the domain of the ordinary individual and not the domain of the saint. Such is the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain of the world, yet not the domain of the passions. Such is the domain of the Bodhisattva. Where, so um, when I was eating dinner with my wife, I told her th about this guy and how uh, he knew more than everyone else. And she said, well, how do you know that? That he was right. And I, I thought that was a good question. And I said, I said he just did. But, no, but why is it that people believe in this guy, you know, or is he just making this up? So I think that's a good question. Like, I think his life, from how it's described in the previous chapter, is an indication of, of, you know, that he's right because he's, you know, he's, he's one. He's liberating people left and right. He's 
in one discourse, he, he liberated people into, what was it? Okay, that's a good answer. Yeah, to we, enlightened all these people, plus, you yeah. know, the way he deals yeah. with other people constantly and, and is kind successful. Proof is in the pudding. Exactly. Okay, I'll tell her that. <laughs> where, where one understands liberation, yet does not enter final and complete liberation, there is a domain of the Bodhisattva, where the four Maras manifest, yet where all the works of Maras are transcended, there is a domain of the Bodhisattva, where one seeks the Gnosis of omniscience, yet does not attain this Gnosis at the wrong time, there is a domain of the Bodhisattva. Where one knows the four holy truths, yet does not realize those truths at the wrong time, there is the domain of the Bodhisattva. A domain of introspective insight, wherein one does not arrest voluntary in reincarnation in the world, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva. A domain where one realizes birthlessness, yet does not become destined for the ultimate, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva. When one sees relativ relatively without entertaining any convictions, there is the domain of the Bodhisattva. When one associates with all beings, yet keeps free of all afflictive instincts, there is the domain of the Bodhisattva. A domain of solitude with no place for the exhaustion of body and mind, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain of the triple world, yet invisible from the ultimate realm, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain of voidness, yet where one cultivates all types of virtues, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain of signlessness, where one keeps a sign in sight, <coughs> the deliverance of all living beings, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain of wishlessness, where one voluntarily manifests lives in the world, such is the domain of the Bodhisattva. It's real interesting. Anyway, go ahead. Yep. Were you going to say something? Yeah, that's not important. I'll say it later. Go ahead. Uh, a domain essentially without undertaking, yet where all the roots of virtue are undertaken without interruption, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain of six transcendence, where one attains the transcendence of the thoughts and actions of all living beings, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain of six super knowledges, where defilements are not exhausted, such as the, the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain of living by holy dharma, without even perceiving any evil paths, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva, the domain of the four immeasurables, where one does not accept rebirth in the heaven of Brahma, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva, the domain of the six remembrances, unaffected by any sort of defilement, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva, the domain of contemplation, meditation, and concentration, 
for one does not reincarnate in the formless realms by force of these meditations and concentrations, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva, the domain of the four right efforts where the duality of good and evil is not apprehended, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva, the domain of the four bases of magical powers where they are effortlessly mastered, such as the domain of the Bodhisattva. I think Nancy didn't read. Yeah, She's, the domain of yeah. the fire. Oh, you want to say something? No, I was. He was faster. He said, "But <laughs> go ahead." The domain of the five spiritual uh, faculties, where one knows the degrees of the spiritual faculties of living beings, such is the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain of living with the five powers, where one delights in the ten powers of the Dabhagata, such is the domain of Bodhisattva. The domain of perfection of the seven factors of enlightenment, where one is skilled in the knowledge of the five intellectual distinctions, such is the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain of the holy eightfold path, where one delights in the unlimited path of the Buddha, such is the domain of Bodhisattva. The domain of the cultivation of the aptitude for mental question uh, yeah. and, and transcendental analysis, where one does not fall into extreme quietism, <coughs> such as the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain of the realization of the unborn nature of all things, yet of the perfection of the body, the us by auspicious size and marks and mm. the ornaments of the Buddha such is the domain of the Bodhisattva the domain of manif uh, manifesting the attitudes of the disciples and the solitary sage without sacrificing the quality qualities of the Buddha such is the domain of the Bodhisattva the domain of conformity to all things utterly pure in nature while manifesting behavior that suits the inclinations of all living beings, such is the domain of the Bodhisattva. A domain where one realizes that all the Buddhas, all the Buddha fields are indestructible and uncreatable, having the nature of infinite space, yet where one manifests manifest the establishment of the qualities of the Buddha views in on their variety and magnitude, such is the domain of the Bodhisattva. The domain where one turns the will of the Holy Dharma and manifest the magnificence of ultimate liberation, yet never forsakes the career of the Bodhisattva, such is the domain of the Bodhisattva. When Vinamakirti had spoken this discourse, 8,000 of the gods in the company of the crown prince Manjushri conceived the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment. Okay. With that is chapter five. And um, so, so what I was suggesting before is that there's an awful lot in here. Um, but that 
that what's woven through it are the four noble truths and where um, the essential question of what is sickness? What is that? What is sickness? Um, and I would say, well, so this is the same question as there is suffering, there is sickness, there is suffering. And then the second part here is, this says exactly what's said in the words of the Buddha for, for what is the second noble truth, which is, um, this clinging, <clears throat> uh, is that the word they use? Uh, get the right word that they use. Uh, ignorance and um, basically clinging to um, existence. So that, that's the same, you know, it's falling right in the same pattern of that. And then the third one, the, the third double truth being cessation. And so he talks about the sensation is the way I was looking at it was when he starts talking about the abandonment of, of a couple of things in particular. Um, and, then, and then it's through the fourth, fourth noble truth through the eighth fold path. And so the rest of it, where he's talking about the, <clears throat> um, the ego and the dualistic, talking about whole discussion is talking about right view. And so that's, that's all what he's gone through. And actually, um, for those of you who are in the, the compassion and emptiness um, class, a lot of this was contained in the contemplation, the last contemplation that we read. I don't know if you remember that, but the last step in it was non-perception. Do you remember that? No? <laughs> okay. I was listening mostly because it came up in here. Yeah, anyway, that, that, what, that last um, contemplation in that class goes right along with this, the same, same process. So anyway, for whatever that's worth. So what I was wondering, what I wanted to, to ask about in terms of this text, um, what, does anybody have any comments about it to start with? I do. I do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I see the, the, the um, Four Noble Truths, you know, being woven here and so forth. But, you know, what, what struck me was um, a language about the middle, basically the middle way. And I don't recall seeing any of that kind of language in the stuff we just studied in depth and practice. No. From the boot. So, for example, this is just beautiful. Point. 47. Uh, not the domain of the ordinary individual and not the domain of the saint. That's the domain of the Bodhisattva. This is wonderful. Domain of the world, not the domain of the passions. That, you know, we haven't seen that kind of language. I haven't seen that language yet in, in the Pali Canon from, from the Buddha, from Shakyamuni Buddha. So this is like 400, did you say 400 years after?
Yeah. So it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, yeah, but the other thing too is, you know, this, the, all the gods that were with them. And, I mean, this is just strange language, you know, this, you know, this, you know, how do, how are we to understand that in today's world, except that it was coming, this is a very old text that is reflecting its own times and its own belief systems that weren't necessarily true. It's just, these are just narratives, right? That well, this written by, by human beings who are, are trying to express the inexpressible, but they're, but they're using the language of, of their time, the concepts right. of their time. That's right. right? It's, it's, culturally contingent well that's that's true um but on the other hand that's why it's really important to to look at this and what i wanted it for us to do is is to look at it in terms of um our life today so i mean even in terms of if you want to just look at the at the at the how they've gone through the four noble truths within their cultural context, we can do the same right now with today. So, and I kind of want to do that, um, if you'll allow me, um, is what is today, what would be considered, what is the biggest large scale global problem we have right now? What is it? Sickness. Sickness. <laughs> it's sickness. <laughs> It's the virus. So it's it's the same. It's the sickness. And also the numbers. The numbers are just as unbelievable. This is true too. You know, two hundred and eighty thousand and one million and even bigger numbers. And you could even consider what the thing that I was talking about: people being transplanted from one place to another. Here we have, I have in my bedroom right now, nine people, you know, which is not that big, but I could have, if I were Flint, this would be 150 <laughs> people in my bedroom. <laughs> so, I mean, we're dealing with the same sort of, 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 of things. And so, so we say, well, gosh, there's this, this sickness. And what is it caused from? We're trying to figure out what it's caused from. Well, we don't know. We don't know, but but if you take if you take the, the four noble truths and what they're saying in this, ultimately they're saying that it's caused from ignorance. Ignorance. It's caused from ignorance. <laughs> ignorance and and um, the clinging it to existence. Time. Yeah. And so and then it goes through and says well, we need to stop that. Right. That's the the cessation because what it is is it's how is that um manifested this this clinging to things is manifested by greed hate and delusion right i mean that's how that's how we look at it and so the greed what kind of greed do we have as as a part of the sickness that's going on toilet Does paper, any... toilet paper. <laughs> 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 And I don't mean this kind of alcohol, I mean to clean my, you know, to clean. Um, 
yeah, there's a lot of greed. And what about the, the corporations versus the small business receiving money? You know, the corporations have sucked up all the small business loans. I mean, there's greed all over the place right now. Um, and then the hate, which hate or aversion, what is that? What can be, what's showing up right now as aversion? Any ideas? Or hating? Divisions. I'm sorry? Divisions, dividing. Yeah, yeah. Who's to blame? Who are we blaming? It's the Chinese, it's the, you know, whoever. It's the, it's the Republicans or it's the Democrats, depending on what side of the aisle you sit on. Yeah, there's a lot of hatred going on about this stuff. Yeah, and then delusion. You know, there's a lot of delusion, a lot of misinformation. Nobody knows what's what. There's a lot of, a lot of that. So what I, would, what I would say is that this is not, this is a really, really, really old text. And it still applies the essential um, tenets of it. So, so we went through, and then we, the guy, he talked about abandonment of certain behaviors. So that would be the cessation. And then the fourth thing is that it talked about the bodhisattva in particular. But um, let's see, where are we? Um, he talk, oh, he started to talk about emptiness. Emptiness comes in. And that's, that's like, you know, explains a lot of, it's, we're so stuck in the relative, we can't, we can't see anything beyond it, right? We've got all these ideas about things, and that's where our delusion comes from, is, is these ideas that we create in our head, that we make up. I mean, they may suit in the relative world, but ultimately they're not, they're not true. I mean, it's, even liberation is, is empty. But then it goes into specifically, how should a bodhisattva console another bodhisattva? And it goes through this long list of all these things that that one would do, what, what a bodhisattva, how they would cons console another bodhisattva. And so, um, let's see. And then he goes through, how do, we, how do we get rid of it? That's another question of ours. How do we get rid of this sickness? And here it says, eliminate possessiveness, which eliminate possessiveness, I, me, or mine, and which stops the greedy part, right? You can stop thinking only in terms of oneself. I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but this is the way I was looking at this. Um, and then freedom from, from dualism, you know, that was the second thing he suggested. What is that? It's the absence of involvement with the external and the internal, or the internal. Get stuck one way or the other, either with your inside stuff or with the outside stuff. But we're involved in one or the other. And then the, the uh, non-deviation, non-fluctuation, non-distraction non from equanimity. So equanimity being this characteristic of, of what? Treating all things as, I wouldn't say all things as equal, but um, being calm within this, this whole storm, perhaps, and not choosing who you're going to, who you're going to liberate one over another, I would say too, but that's my extension. It doesn't say that. Anyway. So those are some ideas that I have. Uh, does anybody else have? And then, you know, I, this was the other one about delusion, thinking about the body as impermanent. 
And so this was a specific line to the, about talking about the Bodhisattva and what you, what you were talking about, Barbara, um, the body, tell the, tell the Bodhisattva that's um, sick, the body is impermanent, but don't resort to renunciation or disgust, which in the Buddha's words, they was telling those monks to do that, you know, to be the body is disgusting. And there were all those practices for a while anyway. And they say, don't do that. And tell them that the body is miserable, but don't seek solace and liberation. And why wouldn't you do that if you're a bodhisattva? You wouldn't want to be stuck in liberation because then you couldn't, um, you don't want to go to the, as far as the ultimate because then you won't be a bodhisattva. <laughs> You'd be a disciple. And disciples don't, don't, aren't, aren't saving living beings necessarily, not like the bodhisattva coming back all the time. So. Well, do you think it's a thing too where, where you're not seeking liberation as, as a goal, but you're just doing the work? Yeah, okay. Yeah, but you know, I've been kind of confused on that stuff because it, it changed over time or that, like in the Theravadan, they're, they're seeking that, which is kind of the original stuff. And then the later stuff, like in Zen in particular, you're not attaining. So yeah, it varies, I think, of the time period. But, um, would, it, would it vary as well as if you're um, the non-returner, the once-returner, the stream enter, like that perception versus yes. the defined intention of the Bodhisattva vow yes. in a very Mahayanist perspective? Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, that's the, that's the distinction. And that, that's the whole thing about this text. It's very specifically Mahayana. And so um, it, in all these stories, which we didn't go over, but if you have the book and get a chance to read, uh, I think it's the third third or fourth chapter, it's the third and fourth chapter, it's telling these stories when each of the disciples and each of the bodhisattvas are telling the stories of what happened when they were, you know, meditating or they were teaching or something and the Vimalakirti comes along and says, well, you know, that's not really the way to do it. You should do it this way. Which when I first heard that, when the first time I was introduced to Vimalakirti, I thought he was just a smarty pants. But I learned that it wasn't that at all. It's that he loved these loved human beings or living beings so much that he wanted to, you know, get it right. You know, he was into the Bodhisattva way, the Mahayana way, rather than people being out of the world, but being they should be in it and trying to liberate the people that are in the world. So, yeah. Yeah. I left them in silence. So. Okay, we're almost done. Any any questions or comments? Yeah, I just, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so um, I was listening with interest to the commentary now, and uh, the comparison between the Theravada and the Mahayana, um, suddenly made me think much more clearly about the localization of these uh, developments. And yeah, I mean, it's a geographical uh, difference. And then there is also a cultural difference on which Buddhism has been grafted past the Theravada. Mm -hmm. Okay, talk, so, talk more about that. Uh, 
Yeah, well, because Buddhism was only one of the many uh, ascetic uh, developments in, in India, mm -hmm. uh, and it was the only one that uh, actually did not go along with, the, with most of them by denying anything permanent. And that was the, the, the main sort of crux of um, that particular development of, of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. But they shared in common some of the practices, how they would uh, um, experience liberation. And if you think about it, uh, the Buddha himself was, I mean, in the early times, was a bodhisattva. Mm -hmm. He experienced in Bodhgaya, um, his enlightenment at the age 30 something, right? And then he taught until he died, right? Mm -hmm. So, but it's not usually spelled out like that. Mm -hmm. He just practiced it. Mm -hmm. Well, he did a lot of preaching too. I mean, teaching along the way. I, I'm always right. struck with this text. I've always wondered and, you know, tried to imagine what it would be like to live back then. Even in, you know, with Christianity in the Middle East, you know, people are walking around and gathering up, you know, and having these profound conversations and lessons and demonstrations and stuff. I, you know just I'm just so struck with you know how different their lives were from ours and 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 their focus on the spirituality you know how many people would that be you know was, they're just walking around and, and people are just gathering up to hear this guy talk you know it's just fascinating to me I don't it's just such a different time. So, not a... That, that, is, that is very true, but... Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't no, mean I, to interrupt I, you. I didn't either. Go ahead. I didn't have anything more to say. Well, I was just thinking, um, it probably wasn't possible that um, the majority of people would be able to attend. But um, it's probably like... Um, in, in some other instances, development of pilgrimages, that people will gather around a person that, uh, or music concerts in, in, in today's uh, world, I know, the, the last 70 years or something like that, mm -hmm. that you have large gatherings and uh, they, give support to people in many ways. They may not be Buddha-like, right? Mm -hmm. This, the, the, but then I was, this seems to be so spontaneous and, you know, unplanned and, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and there's so many teachers, there's so many bodhisattvas out there talking about this all the time. It just... Yeah, I just see it as a very different world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, we can... Uh, books 
and uh, many and a lot of the musical instruments we had, you know, they just really didn't have many ways to spend their time. I would think that they'd spend almost all their time just surviving. Yeah, growing food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How much time? Uh, yeah. And, you know, and I have food delivered and put on my front porch. <laughs> I always think about work. Yes. And I think of my grandparents, you know, living on the Azor Islands in the middle oh. of the Atlantic. And just, you know, just uh, growing up there, it was just the life was so hard. I don't know when they have time to talk about this stuff. <laughs> Just amazing to me. So anyway, it, I don't mean to be flip about it, but it's just uh, it always strikes me. This is so strange to me. This whole setup is so strange. And for talking about gods and so forth, it's just a different world, you know. And I and, and and it's not Zen. This isn't really Zen practice, I don't think. But it's not yet, but it's you can see it starting to develop in a certain it's it's not a fixed Buddhism isn't a fixed thing, you know. No, it's not. Over time and space. Well, it was right. Time and space. And well, space with with their cultures, right? They got drafted on, grafted on uh, Tibetan born re religion or changing it from born. And then in, in China, where there were very practical um, ideologies. And then uh, in, in Japan, with uh, so much of uh, interest in military or... Um, King support and stuff like that. That actually, uh, this this developed in in this way. Um, it is quite amazing that each each of the developments actually uh, is beholden to uh, the culture on on which it grew, on which it developed. And so it's true right now in, in the United States. It's so. Yeah. Oh, it's its own yeah. flavor. Totally That's different right. flavor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's still evolving. <laughs> That's right. But what's interesting to me, too, is that at the same time, you can see these seeds all kind of, you can see the mm. development. Mm. And, mm. you know, mm. and yes. in these, in the, 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 the certain words, skillful means and noble paths and voidness and so forth, you know, it's, it's really in hindrances. We didn't see that tonight, but you see that in our sutras, you know, and that's really old stuff, you know, but it's totally evolved. It's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think so too. But this isn't Zen, yeah. No, I, I mean, Zen, Zen is, is one of the Mahayana 
is a Mahayana tradition, but it's very, it's different from this. It has its own brand of looking at things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've run out of time. And I, so I just want to reiterate um, that next week we're going to be looking at chapter seven. And um, so uh, there's this, it's on the goddess. And so I thought we would have um, uh, the first part, there's going to be Vimala Kirti and um, Manjushri talking. So I thought I would have two people do that part. It's not a real big section. And then um, uh, I invited uh, Kim to be the, um, to be Shariputra um, for the, with, who's interacting with the goddess. So I'll need a goddess and, and then two other people to, to be the other section. So if any volunteers for the goddess, it's a great part. Um, and you just have, you just read it, you know, it's not, but it's, it's a real, it's a good part to play. Bring your, well, yeah, we're going to be kind of acting out. So, um, so any, any volunteers? Anybody want to be a I goddess? You can do it. Great. Okay. <laughs> then, um, you maybe you may want to talk with, um, Kim. I don't know. Maybe you guys want to set that up or not. Maybe you just want to come ad lib. So that's fine too. And then I'll need two other people for Manjushri and the other thing. So we can um, figure that out or we can decide that now. We're kind of over time. So I should probably let you go. Manjushri. Okay. We have a Manjushri. Manjushri. Now we need a Vimalakirti. Any takers? Oh, no. Oh, you want to be Bar Barbara? I was going to volunteer John. <laughs> 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 I think John should be him. Sure. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. We have a taker. All right. So great. And then the, the last time we'll do a different thing. So I look forward to seeing you. And if you have any thoughts about any, any of this, um, bring it next time and we'll, we'll see if we can address it. So. We'll go on with Vimala Kirti. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. See you next week. See you. See you. Thank you, Laurie.